Our breakfast. Oh, yay. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8:30 a.m. Wednesday breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandri and Burrung peoples of the Kulin Nations. We pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. And with that in mind, let's start the show. Good morning, guys. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, We're in studio today with uh, myself, Idwin. Rob. And Jess. Yeah, see, the the naming off thing is getting less weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, It's... A wintry, woolly Wednesday. Yeah, I got up this morning and the rain was just like, "Good morning." Out <laughs> <laughs> of your face. Uh, you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it hasn't been a very nice few weeks, but yeah. it's also nice to have some rain. I have to say, in terms of that's true. It has been dry, so I can't complain too much. Hottest July on record. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Scary, scary stuff. Um, but yeah, no. Today was an interesting shift in the weather because I feel like everyone's been sick, and then you've yeah. seen like a little bit of sun coming through over the weekend and stuff like that and it's just like no it's just <laughs> reminding you by just like smacking you a little bit yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. but um, besides that how was your week? Um, my weekend my week's again been uni we're so boring because we're all uni students <laughs> yeah, like, so yeah. it's really got nothing that's what we do <laughs> however East Malvern actually this is one thing we did East Malvern has a light festival that goes on mm. surprisingly it goes on like the weekend before white night so it's <laughs> almost like it's trying to steal white night thunder <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was on... Or lightning, I should say. Or lightning. That's exactly right. <laughs> uh, it was on from Thursday last week to Sunday. Mm. And it was really cool, actually. We went along, like, totally like, what? We've never been. Let's see what this is like. Yeah. Thousands of kids. Mm. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so many children. Which is, like, half the atmosphere. It's half, absolutely. Um, but it was really cool, because you had, like, um one suspended kind of puppet, light puppet man, right? Mm. Really big. Yeah. And they were letting, like, kids control it. Oh, so, like, you had like, little kids just... Super interactive. Super yeah. interactive. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's that's cool as. Because, you know, these, these yeah. things are usually, like, don't touch the installations. Mm. They're awful. Just look and watch. So, yeah, no, that was that was probably my highlight. That's great. Mm. Awesome. Um, with the show today, We've kind of got uh, uh, a bit of a mix. Today yeah. it's not really like got a specific focus. So our first interview is at 7.30. Jess, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so we're um, interviewing the founder of Team Timbuktu, Rihanna Knight, who the company is actually a sustainable company that uses recycled bottles for their fabrics Ooh. and their clothing. Yeah, so we'll have a look at that. And um, what she has to say about the ongoing... New, awesome, amazing trend of using mm. sustainable methods of mm. production and means for clothing Absolutely. in Australia. Yeah, that was one thing. Also, we were um, investigating circular economies this week. Rob, mm. you might be, you might be. Uh, this is questions. my jam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This whole idea of yeah. kind of building in sustainability and well, could you give us a bit of a rundown of yeah. what, what circular, circular economy economies is? Are? <laughs> now, now I can't back out of that statement. Um, yeah, no, it's the circular economy. It's essentially rather than the idea of like we use something and then it has its life and then we put it in landfill. It's mm-hmm. kind of how do we use all all the materials and all that in the product and keep on reusing that. Absolutely. Mm. And that goes that, that that plan starts in design process of like yes. how can we Absolutely. design this so that it'll be useful in every stage of its life. Hundred percent. I love it. 
Yeah. It's such a cool thing. And apparently a lab's been opened up in Brisbane. The first circular economy lab in Australia Ooh. was opened up in Brisbane earlier this year. That's great. Mm. There's also some work in, I think, UNSW, they're researching about circular economy, but with electronics. Mm. So how to use all the microchips, I think, for 3D printing plastic. Oh, wow. Which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, well, Definitely needed, because I know uh, also, because I've been doing a little bit of research mm-hmm. <laughs> this can get. Uh, 2018, defense pa- a, a white paper has actually stated that Australia needs to move away from its linear economy, economy. to, yeah. and it hasn't quite explicitly said it, but like everything it's written in its report mm. basically goes, circular economies. Without saying <laughs> it. <laughs> Without yeah. saying it directly. <laughs> they don't want to scare the sheep. So, um, yeah, hopefully we see some movement towards that. Yeah. Especially absolutely. with um, China not taking our waste anymore, which is like, very fair enough. <laughs> yeah. We have... There's a lot of issues with waste. Bigger calls than ever, yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. So that sounds like an awesome... I'm just... I'm, I'm very yeah. for that. <laughs> psyched for that interview. Um, at 8 o'clock, we'll be talking to Roger from Melbourne University, and we'll be talking to him about a recent survey um, from Hilda. I'll have the larger name for you a little bit later. <laughs> but that's basically talking about uh, poverty rates in Australia and the rise that they've seen since about 2012. But this is the most recent report. Uh, I thought it could just be interesting to kind of find out how we measure poverty in Australia mm-hmm. uh, and kind of the trends we're seeing around it. Um, Roger's got a few things to say to draw it back to kind of our economic environment mm-hmm. and also policy that we're seeing. So I thought that could be interesting and pressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last thing that we'll be, we'll be playing a few kind of conversations from from previous Recordings, previous yeah. shows yep so we'll be finishing off our fair go for the work <laughs> <laughs> uh, series of a mini weeks yeah yep. absolutely I, it's just been so good yeah, been, i'm, I'm not even gonna lie no. like i've been really enjoying <laughs> so uh we've listened to a few things and we'll be listening to shirley winton today and we'll have a few other stuff uh, kind of dotted throughout the show yeah can't think of anything else jess is on music today yeah, so yeah. i am resident dj today how did you feel about kind of creating the show what does it take oh, very nerve-wracking you know i hope everyone enjoys i tried to find Aussie bands but um i think i need to do better next time um no i saw today my inspiration was honestly um just the hype for spring to be honest mm. like i know it's quite cliche but the warm weather has sort of given me the inspiration to Find some happy find music. Some, yeah, find yeah. some happy music in here. Are you implying my music was sad? Or? <laughs> <laughs> no, I loved your music. No. <laughs> so much. You had a lot of good feedback on your music. I did have good feedback yeah. on your music. I was going to say, yeah, for like, it was very um, Welsh melancholy. It, it was, was yeah, yeah. It was very melancholy. Yeah. But. Absolutely. All right, we'll play um, the alternative news yeah. theme and we'll get into alternative news. So we'll be right back after the beautiful nitty gritty by the Shirley Elise. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout if some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah. Boom, nitty-gritty, hoo-wee. Right down to the real nitty-gritty.
So for alternative news for Wednesday breakfast. So first news story is out of Canada. So Canada's currently about to go through an election. I think it's on October 21st. And so Canada's election watchdog has warned that any lobby groups that say in their campaigns that climate change is real could actually be breaking the law, which is crazy. So the this is primarily because one of the parties running in the election denies that climate change is happening at all. And so as a result, running any campaigns that talk about climate change could then be considered as partisan activity and supporting one party over another. And so because of just one party's platform, it means that no charity can discuss or talk about the climate emergency. And so Elections Canada have come out saying that this is it's been stated by law in terms of the Canadian elections that it doesn't matter if the position taken by a candidate is correct or not it's whether if they take the position if you support that then you're considered partisan so as a result it means that if any environmental group registers to campaign in the election and talks about climate change they then actually threaten their charitable status wow so that's a really interesting development so um down on freedoms <laughs> yeah well i mean i mean it really limits the discussion and i think it's also like a question of like just because a party, party platform says something is it then right to think that they're you know, we assume that they're correct. It's it, kind of got an interesting yeah. underlying principle behind it, it. It definitely removes the accountability of kind of, you know, the journalism is supposed to be yeah. <laughs> accountability kind of vice. It kind of it implies really does, yeah, that the candidates, and, it, and this isn't a major party, it was a party mm. that was a sort it was a, um, formed from the Conservative Party, it was a branch off, mm. but they're not a major party, but because one of them has a platform to say this, then currently they can't, none of them can talk about it anymore. So, and yeah, it's also interesting just the implication that politicians are the ones who are the most correct um and then everything else follows from that so yeah that'll be one to watch to see what happens there uh secondly so australian power stations have been uh, amongst the world's worst for toxic air pollution so there's been a recent report um from greenpeace talking about how the coal-fired stations in latrobe valley and lake macquarie regions are among the biggest hotspots for sulfur dioxide air pollution in fact there are two of the worst in the top 50 in the world. So this report was using satellite data published by NASA, and they were using it to analyse the worst hotspots for sulphur dioxide across the world. And, like, unsurprisingly, it found that the greatest source of sulphur dioxide is from the burning of fossil fuels in power stations and industrial facilities. And so this is also happening at the same time that the Australian standards for air pollution is currently being reviewed, because currently the sulphur dioxide limits stated in the Australian standards for air pollution is actually 11 times higher than what is recommended by the World Health Health Organization. So I think timely kind of release of the report to sort of reconsider what should be a safe standard for air pollution for sulfur dioxide. Um, And also there's been a lot of reporting about how sulfur dioxide has a huge impact on human health. So nationally, this isn't just for Latrobe Valley and Lake Macquarie, but nationally that uh, coal-fired power plants cause... 40,000, sorry, 4,000 deaths per year. Um, another story more locally. So there's a forecast that there might be a potential grain and vegetable shortage this year. So unless there's rain in the next six weeks in the eastern states, um, there will potentially be no summer crops for grain and vegetable. And this is coming out of the more recent forecast from the Bureau of Meteorology that predict drier than average conditions for the rest of the year. And so obviously a lot of farmer groups have been saying the impact this is going to have on crops and jobs, um, but it's also compounding on the effects of the existing drought already. And so just to sort of emphasise it from last year, the ABS data showed that 
In 2018, wheat and barley production dropped by about 23 and 14% respectively last year, and that was the worst in a decade. So there's a fair chance that we might expect worse this year. Um, and then finally, uh, I've, been, I've talked about Brazil pretty much every week, but there's just a lot of interesting stories coming from Brazil. But this week, there was a report that said there's been 500 million bees that have been killed in the last three months because they've started using a new pesticide across the country. And so half a billion bees have died. And considering that a third of our food relies on the pollination from bees, it's not great for Brazil's no. food security. We're big bee supporters on the Wednesday break. We are. We've had we are. multiple bee interviews. That's a horrible update. Yeah, it's. Mm. Will wouldn't be very happy about that for sure. Will would not be very <laughs> happy about that at all, no. Yeah, but that's my alternative news for today. Mm. Well, <laughs> not finishing up on that. No, I, I, last I, yeah. week. But thank you very much. Um, we'll be oh. getting into another section we're kind of in the process of building called News Headlines. We're just going to play a few uh, community announcements and we'll be right back. Broadband return, playing the tote band room, Sunday, September 1st. Having completed an 11-city Japanese tour, they now launch their Japanese-released album along with US split vinyl. Very special guests are Japanese label mates, 20 Gilders, featuring Mitsuru Tabata of Acid Mother's Temple. Light Magnetic, the new band with members from The Scientist and Paradise Motel, plus competition team. Broadband, the tote, Sunday, September 1st, Tickets, $10 pre-sale from the thetotehotel.oztix.com.au Kazumuwan Records is a 3CR supporter. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition, parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions and look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarang Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarang country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labour Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat 
or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. And that was the Japwarong um, case, which is going on and having some big developments today, mm. so we'll get on to that in a moment. Uh, but first off, we've got Jess with the news headlines. Jess, what's going on today? Yep, so today we're looking at The Age, Wednesday, August the 21st. Um, the major headline of the paper today is the RBA, Reserve Bank of Australia, chief fears US push to muscle up on China. Um, it comes when the governor of the, the Reserve Bank of Australia, Philip Lowe, has casted his doubt over the calls out of the US to for Team West to gang up against China. Now, we've spoken about this in previous weeks on the show. Um, tensions are obviously rising, and now um, it's become sort of an, an economical worry for Australians and um, obviously the banking in Australia. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's basically what's on the age. Um, looking at the Australian as well, um, we're looking at your data is at risk in takeovers. We've also looked at this headline before as well. Um, it's just an ongoing issue of Australians' personal data, um, the argument whether it needs to be protected um, um, with, you know, the foreign investors putting that much money into, mm. you know, uh, finding sources to take our data and use it for, obviously, commercial adver- advertisement means. So, yeah. Absolutely. And um, uh-huh. I've, I've got a few headlines of my own. If, mm. uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so some things that have been happening this week that I thought were just amazing was mm. um, I heard Scott Morrison, Scott Morrison is now talking about rolling out military tech, tech yeah. into Antarctica, <laughs> despite the international ban. Yeah. So <laughs> militarising our, our polars. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And also um, under proposed laws um, suggesting that paying more than 10000 in in cash could make you a criminal under a new proposed law. Mm. So they're trying to cut down on you. Know, they're going, if you have $10,000 in cash, you're probably shifty. But I don't know about you. From, coming from a family where we all use cash, yeah. <laughs> a bit like, oh, that's, that's that nasty. Much, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, there's also been an ongoing um, uh, kind of climate story in the news this week with um, Scott Morrison meeting with um, yep, mm-hmm. with uh, regional relations yes. <laughs> prime ministers and insulting all of them. Uh-huh. So yeah, that's kind of where our state's at this week. Yeah. Lots of money and lots of inaction. Uh-huh. Uh, nice Ongoing inaction. <laughs> Ongoing inaction. Uh-huh. And I just wanted to draw your attention uh, to a topic that we've been kind of following here at 3CR. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the Japwarong uh, Tree Embassy. So for all those who don't know, the Japwarong Tree Embassy is located out in, uh, up in Ararat, about two hours out of the city. And um, on this sacred land, it has um, these birthing trees, which have been used f- for just generations yeah. of, in, of the indigenous people who have been living up there. Um, so, yeah, over 50 generations have been born on these sites, and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. A lot of history. Um, absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can see the photos online that they do have of some of the just the land around the area, mm-hmm. which is quite gorgeous. Um, anyway, um, as part of the... As part of the Daniel Andrews administration, they are destroying these the, these beautiful trees um, in order to make a four-lane highway. So this is by Vic Rhodes, and this is as part of kind of their new their recent you know expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, now there has been previous like reappraisals because obviously uh, the mob who were up there did bring this up. At the start of the year, going, yeah. this, is, <laughs> this is going to be you're yeah. destroying sacred yeah. life. Um, and Vic Rose has done an actual appraisal, mm-hmm. and it was found that it was going to be like a two to three minutes inconvenience. 
if they didn't okay. build on the land itself, yeah. if they kind of diverted around these sacred yeah, trees. So two minutes. <laughs> yeah, two to three now. minutes. Um, and the Daniel Andrews government and Vic Rhodes have decided that that's, that's an inconvenience that they're not willing to take. So okay. they sent an eviction notice to the embassy that was at the, uh, is at the site mm. um, 14 days ago, which means as of today they are being evicted from, from the area. So if you are interested in kind of supporting this, this is a, obviously a very important issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the biggest things that come out of this is that the, the mobs have said no treaty without, you know, recognition. And yes. it comes at a time also when Daniel Andrews is pushing for progressive change and the idea of, you know, trying to create a first uh, people's assembly in, you know, mm-hmm. in state parliament and trying to, pr- very trying to position rather. himself yes. very much mm-hmm. as, you know... The leading light in... <laughs> the leading light. Making a name, yeah. The um, working with partnership, not paternalism, mm-hmm. and yet you've got this, as you said, on the other hand. So it's just extraordinarily hypocritical. Um, very much And so. very much highlights uh, the pragmatism of this administration, mm-hmm. which seems to be quite yeah. happy to follow along with progressive yeah. policy until rather it doesn't than... quite suit their political agenda. Yeah. So if you are interested in getting involved with this, they are calling people up to camp in kind of like an emergency capacity. Uh, to kind of get involved, you can head to their website, which is um, at dwembassy.com. Um, just look that up, and that will kind of give you information about why they're here and that sort of stuff, and also just where they're located, because mm-hmm. it is just outside of Ararat. Um, and if you are thinking of heading up or if you want to support them in a different capacity, uh, they, are, they have got a list of things they need, which include things like um, DC lighting, tarps, rope, uh, radios, cable ties, fresh food, basically anything that just keeps them going are the people who have been there, have been there for almost a year now. Yeah. Um, so it's just an amazing test of their endurance to protect this land. Mm. Um, but also if you, are, if you are interested in kind of hitching a ride up there, there is a Facebook group called Carpools to Camp. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, so what you can do is you go onto Facebook, join that group, they'll add you and you can uh, potentially carpool up with someone. It's a good idea, seeing as our right is about yes, quite a while two away. to three hours from here anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So um, yeah, we, we just wanted to make a big shout out mm-hmm. to that because it's something we've been following on, and unfortunately today, Wednesday the twenty first, is the eviction notice has been delivered, and it's going to be a big day of action. Mm-hmm. So we send out solidarity to people who are up there. Yeah, wish them all the best. Absolutely, and uh, if we if you are able to support in any capacity. I mean, we don't want to say drop everything and, you know, leave your life, go up there. But if you are able to support in the capacity, I think it's definitely a worthwhile cause. Even if you want to call up the Daniel Andrews government and just say, what's going on? Mm. This is ridiculous. Um, anything to help out, I reckon, would be appreciated at this point. So just wanted to make a big call out to that. And with that huge ramble of talking, uh, we'll hit onto a song and come back with our first interview.
Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarang Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarang country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. The Renegade Pub Football League proudly presents its inaugural Pride Round, Painting Victoria Park Rainbow, on Saturday, August 24th. Celebrating diversity in pub football, this free community event offers a laid-back afternoon of gender-inclusive Aussie Rules football, alongside DJs and a charity barbecue. Saturday, August 24th, gates open at 12.30. For more information, including pub footies August and September fixture, visit www.rpfl.com.au. The Renegade Pub Football League is a 3CR supporter. The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair with displays, books, garden pots, giftware and activities for children, along with talks, demonstrations, workshops, refreshments and door prizes. The Australian Plants Expo, Saturday the 14th and Sunday the 15th of September, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Adults $5, concessions $4 and children free. Contact Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra via email on apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430 513 433 for more information. The Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR. We're going to jump into our first interview. Um, quick shout out. That was Capitalism by Tora before as our first song. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we're talking to Rihanna Knight this morning from Team Timbuktu. Um, hi, Rihanna. How are you? Yeah, it's really good, thanks. How are you going? Great. Thanks for coming on the show this morning. Yeah. So there's been new research from the University of Melbourne about sustainable means and methods of, clothes, of clothing usage. Um, it's recently come to light. The research shows that consumers worldwide in Australia are asking for more about the social and environmental impact of their clothes, which I think is super fantastic. Now, your company, um, Team Timbuktu, it's doing amazing things. Um, they're using recycled, you are using recycled plastic bottles in fabric for for your garments. Can you give us an insight into what makes your company so sustainable? Like, why... How did you, you know, come to this? Like, it's such a cool initiative. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So initially, like a couple of years ago, I was hiking through Patagonia wearing horrible hiking clothes, like exactly what you'd imagine, hiking pants. Um, and so not only were they ruining my photos, they're also made from conventional synthetics, meaning they were derived from oil, so they actually have a really negative impact upon the environment. Mm-hmm. So with my background in fashion, like I knew there was a possibility to make them more sustainable and you didn't have to compromise on like the style, the function or the sustainability. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Team Timbuktu, our entire supply chain is more considered. So that's right from the raw material to create the fabric right through to the packaging. So we use fabrics made from recycled plastic bottles, meaning not only are we saving the plastics that would otherwise end up in landfill or ocean, mm-hmm. um, we're also using significantly less energy. Like quotes go from about 60 to 75% less energy compared to conventional synthetics um, and then also using not using uh, non-renewables such as oil where synthetics are derived from and um, right through to our packaging, which we use um, a company that creates home compostable packaging using cornstarch instead of single-use plastics as well. So it's just really analysing every single point of the supply chain, looking at what the conventional standard and how we can reduce our impact and do better from there. Yeah, definitely. It's such a, it's yeah, it's great what you guys are doing. And a lot of um, a lot of clothing brands in Australia are stepping out now. Um, there's been calls for transparency, especially after the impacts from um, the production stages, like the envir- environmental costs from um, producing virgin fibres and growing genetically modified um, crops or processing synthetic dyes. Um, it's yeah, what you guys are doing, uh, it's very cool. Do you, is there one, so I know that you, are you doing more research into, you know, stepping up and making it even more sustainable as you already have, or is there anything? Yeah, absolutely. So eventually I think the goal for all sustainably minded companies eventually is circularity. So eventually it would be incredible to put no waste into landfill, to not use any conventional fibres and to just essentially make no impact upon the planet. Mm-hmm. However, as a very small business, it's incredibly hard and just for the most part, like secularity just isn't viable based off our quantities that we produce right now. But in the meantime, there's definitely small changes all the time, like uh, measuring our impact, changing our swing tags to recycled, increasing the percentage of the recycled fibre in our fabrics and just all these little points along the way. Um, so I think we've started with a really good base, but of course there's always the opportunity to improve as well. Mm-hmm. Hi, Rihanna, this is Ivan here. Um, I just had a quick question. Uh, a lot of the critics, critics to come out of this uh, who use kind of, you know, more synthetic brands and stuff like that say, oh, it's, it's too hard to do recycling, you know, alternatives or, or mm. it, it, you know, the, it's so ingrained in our kind of culture and our fashion culture that... That yeah, this sort of sustainability option is really on an outlier. Did you find it that hard to kind of shift mindset to change your process or production kind of means? Um, yes and no. It's definitely more time-consuming and more expensive process to go through, but I think it just comes back down to your personal like, morals and values. For me, it wasn't a question to produce with um, like virgin synthetics just in conventionally made synthetics, the amount of environmental impact is just so severe and mm-hmm. it's not sustainable. So even if you can get away with it now, like I don't think your company will be in business in five years' time or ten years' time if you're only using these kind of outdated methods. And mm-hmm. so I think it's just valuing like people and planet in um, as equals compared to the profit. 
Like, I think it is possible to achieve both rather than just profit and focusing on profit. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it depends on your values and what you want to create within a company. A lot of people just are focused on the profit versus I'd love to create this incredible community of, like, diverse women getting outdoors, moving their bodies for fun over fitness whilst Mm -hmm. helping to educate them on how to reduce the impact personally and also how to encourage other businesses as well because I think that's so important for the state of the world where we're in right now. Absolutely. So a psychological shift, not really a technical shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Um, Yeah, that's really interesting, Um, especially like looking at the other side of it as well. Um, So there's been research saying that 76% of consumers want more information about the um, impacts of their clothes, both social and environmental. Um, At the same time, uh, the British MPs have actually rejected like the fast fashion tax, which was an idea to um, charge fashion producers like uh, a euro per garment um, and using the funds to raise um, improved clothing collection and recycling. Um, this didn't go through, obviously, but um, would you sort of, could you see Australia sort of shifting to maybe propose a tax for this, like a fast fashion tax? Or how do you think Australia should go about helping you, small businesses like yourself, to push for that more? Um, sustainable means of production with clothing. Yeah, the fast fashion tax is a really interesting idea Mm. because um, I definitely support reducing, if not removing, the idea of fast fashion altogether. Mm. However, I think when I don't 100% know about this particular statement, the um, one pound or one euro for the tax, but um, a lot of, I think, outsiders look at it and they're like, oh, it would only cost one pound. But then when you're looking at that and then doing your pricing out, that might actually equal four to ten pounds later in the actual Mm -hmm. retail price. So then obviously that's a significant change. But of course, fast fashion pricing and there's so many problems doing that that we're not even going to get into that. But within Australia, I think there could definitely be a lot more help within the industry. Like there's definitely some incredible bodies doing great work, but there should be more within like the research and development grants or more education within business owners or just more help, I guess, um, for businesses to improve their supply chains, reduce their impact. Yeah, definitely. Because you... Yeah. Like... Just because there's so much to do, but I guess it's very much kind of find out the information yourself at the moment. And for a lot of people that, I guess, don't have the personal passion for sustainability and they are unaware of their impact or someone that just decides to go up and start a fashion label but has no experience in the industry, doesn't know anything about mm-hmm. fabrics or fibres, then they say, oh, of course, I'll just use polyester. It's fine. It's really cheap. Mm-hmm. But they yeah. don't know the impact past that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, especially like your story, how, you know, you came up with the idea and you did the research and, you know, um found that information yourself um it can be it's obviously very um easy for people starting up businesses to you know neglect that and being under pressure Mm. without having guidelines or the proper research there to make that sustainable sort of movement for the production of their clothing Mm. yeah definitely yeah yeah it requires a level of education and then also being happy to absorb the extra time and the cost that it does take knowing that it's better for the business and the environment in the long term yes Definitely. Um, did you find it hard to find uh, to source your materials? Like, was that a long process or? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that took me about twelve months okay. to get to a level that I was happy with. Not only 
with in the fabric performance, but the raw material is used within the fabric mm. and so how it performs and then the pricing and then the supplies that you're working with. So it's a really complicated process. Luckily, I had experience working in industry. So I already had a couple of connections and then a bit of research along the way, a lot of sampling, a lot of talking to manufacturers. Mm. I flew over and visited quite a few manufacturers as well. Um, but, yeah, definitely a long, intensive process. Yeah, it sounds like um, there needs to be a big sort of uh, push for at least making some sort of guidelines or a source of information for startups and small businesses as well as, any, you know, any sort of fashion brand to make the right steps in uh, making sustainable means of production and materials. Yeah, definitely. That would be so incredibly helpful for the industry, I think. Definitely. Um, so would you, to, for people to find more about Team Timbuktu, where should they head? Yeah, absolutely. So just head to our website, teamtimbuktu.com. We've got the process there where you can see how actually we do get from the, the plastic bottle and recycle it right through to the fabric that we then cut into a new garment. Um, otherwise, we're on the Instagram, Team Timbuktu, and always happy to answer emails at hello at teamtimbuktu.com. Great, thank you. And we've just got one last question from Rob. Yes. Um, I just wanted to ask, so you're saying like how, like obviously it's great to have all these smaller businesses looking at recycling and sort of more ethical materials. Have you started to see, has this sort of started to make the big players start to shift in their behaviours as well? Or is it yeah, still the same? Yeah, there are a couple. Um, like Adidas, for example, they're mm. phenomenal in, I think, their a collaboration with Parley to create their recycled shoes and then also a portion of their line is more sustainable and I think a lot of the large companies are introducing kind of a curated collection that is more conscious or more sustainable and it's a great first step but it's only that, it's just the first step and they have the possibility and like they have the funding to create such a just game-changing difference to the industry because the amount that they purchase that they can kind of create um, they can make these more sustainable fibres viable to more businesses because it's all based off demand. So if the large guys aren't purchasing the better fibres, then it makes it really, really difficult for the smaller guys to purchase. And so, yeah, they've got the possibility to make the difference. Versus all the smaller guys, I think it's more about awareness. So I think time will tell whether they do change some definitely are starting to but not everyone yeah absolutely and then i guess you've got the it'll influence the supply chain and everything else and then hopefully it all starts to fall into place yeah yeah absolutely Ariana, sorry, this is final question, I promise. <laughs> um, I was just having a look at the website and there's a kind of campaign here called Meet Our Makers and it struck me because I know we've been following um, kind of around ethical ethical production lines and also there was the Modern Slavery Bill which was brought in earlier this year which kind of seeks to make seeks to make production lines more transparent um, and kind of I just thought it was such a wonderful campaign, the fact of uh, just humanising workers and going, hey, I, I made this garment. Could you kind of talk us through just that campaign and why, why you went about it. Oh, absolutely. So you may or may not know, but I think in 2011 or a couple of years ago, there was a really devastating um, factory collapse in Bangladesh called the Rana Plaza. And so that prompted worldwide movement mm. within the fashion industry for greater transparency and safety within fashion supply chains. So mm. I think it was over 1,100 workers were killed by the factory collapse and they knew going to work that day that it was an unsafe environment mm. and they were telling their bosses it's unsafe and they said, 
we don't care, we're not paying you unless you go to work. And so just that's so unacceptable and it just really comes down to the birth lottery, where you were born, how you grow up and where you have the opportunity to work. Mm. And so many large businesses didn't even know that they were producing in that factory and obviously they wouldn't condone that if they knew that it's just the supply chains are so long and complicated that mm. it's just like a mishmash and no one knows what's going on essentially. And so I think it's so important that there is traceability within supply chains so something like that never happens again. And so a couple of years ago, in a different context, like everyone kind of mm, started learning about fast food and how bad it is for your body and just all the impacts upon that. And now I think we're getting to the point where fast fashion is coming to light or it's like, hey, this is actually really bad. There's, there's no way that you can make a garment for full price at $4 and not take advantage of people or planet within mm. the supply chain. Absolutely. And so I think it's just really educating the customer about all the different um, manufacturers that you work with and just humanizing the process to say like, hey, this is um, this incredible lady. She works within this factory mm. for us. She does this. Um, and yeah, it's just educating the consumer because I think right now it is a little bit detached. Like you just Definitely. go into a store and you purchase a garment but you don't think about what fabric it's made from or who made that or the fact that even a person did make that. Mm. Absolutely. So I think it's mm. just yeah, educating the consumer about that process. We have such a – I always think, because um, my friends are always, you know, oh, Target or stuff like that, and mm. we have such a convenience and, self, uh, and gratification kind of mm. as our priority. And so you're totally right. We, we go and we're like, oh, $5, bargain. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. it's terrible because we're going – well, we, we're, you know, oh, we go, oh, well, poor uni students or something like that, mm. you know, can't afford mm. a $25 shirt. Yeah, because that might be the alternative, but it's just like shifting where our priorities are. I think this, I think this, I don't know, this campaign of humanizing workers and reminding you, it just sounds fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Rihanna. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And that was Rihanna. We'll be playing a song and then we'll be right back.
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And what, what song was that? That was Beginning to End by Taku, one of my favourites. Ah, uh-huh. we're, we're definitely rising in mood. Yeah. All right, so next up we'll be listening um, the last kind of segment from the Fair Go for Pensioners Conference. Um, quick shout out, the Fair Go for Pensioners Conference has served Wednesday mm. Breakfast well. <laughs> We've been loving uh, their content. So this week we'll be listening to Shirley Winton, and she's from the Independent Peaceful Australian Network, also known as IPAN. We have IPAN on all the time. We love them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find more information at their their website, which is ipan.org.au, and she'll be talking about investing in people and peace. So here we go. I'm going to talk about um, don't buy into war, invest in people and the environment. Um, we're meeting on the stolen traditional land of the Kurin nation, never ceded. We pay our respects to elders and warriors past, present and emerging, their culture and the long struggle for justice and sovereignty. This topic may seem remote to what is being discussed today, but it is deeply connected to the theme of this conference, A Fair Go for All. Listening to speakers and discussion today, it's impossible to ignore the huge contradiction in our society, the contradiction between the enormous wealth created by the labour of millions of working people of this country on the one hand, and the seizing of most of this wealth from the needs and well-being of ordinary people in the environment by a tiny handful of corporations. And here lies the source of most of the problems that we are discussing today. This is no more evident than the billions of dollars of public money the government is ploughing into the misnamed defence budget to support US military agendas and a handful of world's biggest profiteering multinational corporations who depend and thrive on wars of aggression and the world being in a perpetual state of war and suffering and the destruction and contamination of our environment. The taxes that we pay in the expectation that they would be used to meet people's needs for decent public health, education, affordable and public housing, a secure standard of living for all people and protection of the environment are instead committed to devastating wars and profiteering by the weapons corporations, who reap huge profits from militarisation of the world torn by, by imperialist wars. Australia's defence budget over the next few years is $200 billion. That's $200 billion of people's taxes will be spent mainly on Australia supporting political and military aggression and on multinational weapons corporations. The $200 billion defence budget is being spent on integrating Australia's defence and military into the US global war machine. And it's not for defending Australia, quite the opposite. Successive Australian governments' support for the US wars, expansion of military and intelligence bases and troops on Australian soil are the biggest threat to Australia's peace, security and sovereignty. The 2,500 US troops are now based in Darwin, which is being redeveloped as a major US military base for US Navy, Air Force and the Marines. It's similar to Okinawa and Guam, which are now full to the brim with US Marines, Navy and the Air Force. So this is one of the reasons for the increased militarisation of Darwin in Australia. The Australia's defence expenditure for the next 12 months, 2019 to 20, will increase to nearly 40 billion and continue to rise annually over the next few years. 
And we can imagine that a third of that 40 billion, how much that can be spent on the needs of the people. The world's top five weapons corporations with global profits running into hundreds of billions are registered in Australia. They are the US Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop Grumman and the British multinational BAE Systems. They receive billions of dollars of public funds in tax-free handouts from the government. Recently, the Australian government awarded foreign military contractors $73 billion in tax-free contracts because contracts made directly with offshore companies' head offices are tax-exempt. Even for those with shell companies in Bermuda, the tax haven of multinational corporations. They are not required to pay tax on the profits made from this $73 billion tax-free gift from Australian people. The Department of Defence has revealed it spends one-fifth of its entire budget, the biggest procurement budget in government, on overseas military contracts. Lockheed Martin, the world's biggest and richest multinational weapons corporations, whose profits run into billions, paid no tax in Australia at all. Billions of dollars in tax evasions by these weapons corporations is not an exception to the rule, as most multinational corporations are siphoning off public funds from social and community needs and services that should be spent on Australia's people. According to the tax office, 15 of the top 21 companies paid zero tax for the three years to 217, including the biggest of them, the BIS weapon system. In January 2018, the government gifted 3.8 billion of public funds to the export of weapons. And the main beneficiaries of these are again the global weapons corporations. Recently, the Australian government bankrolled Electro-Optic System, it's an, a so-called Australian company listed on the stock exchange, to the tune of $40 million for the manufacture and export of arms. Its main shareholder, that's the main shareholder of EOS, is US Northrop Grumman, who owns 20% shares in this Australian companies and will get the largest share of that $40 million of people's taxes. And that is not enough. The US government, under both Obama and now Trump, demand that its allies, including Australia, increase their military spending to support US wars. And you would have heard Trump. Australia's alliance with the US drags us into global wars and enmeshes Australia, Australia's economy into the US military-industrial complex. It is a heavy burden on the people economically and militarily and makes Australia a submissive client of the USA. Um, manufacturing and shipping industries and local jobs have been decimated by neoliberal globalisation and the retired AMW members will be quite familiar with this. Would it not be in the interest of Australia's self-reliance, sovereignty and protection of local jobs for the money now spent on US wars and its weapons corporations to be invested into creating locally sustainable industries and secure jobs for all? Would it not be in the interests of people and the environment to channel the enormous wealth of our country away from wars of aggression to improving and securing a decent standing of living for all people, create secure jobs, build public housing, quality health and education, public transport and developing def defence manufacturing industries for self-defence and not for offensive aggressive wars and invasions of other countries? 
Capitalism does not work for the people and we need to change the system. And that was Shirley Winton talking about kind of investing and independence, uh, peaceful Australia, sorry, investing in people and peace, which is a kind of thing being run by the Independent Peaceful Australian Network, Mm -hmm. IPAN. You are listening to 3CR. (laughs) Jess, have we got a song coming up? Yeah, we do. It's my favourite, actually. Spanish Sahara by Bowles. Uh, We're going to listen to the whole song, though. Mm, it's a long one. Five minutes of it. Hope you enjoy. I don't know. I feel like you need a song to cruise you in day to I think so too. It's yeah. a nice one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we'll get on to that.
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and we just listened to Spanish Sahara by Folds. Yeah, my favourite song. It's also my fa- one of my favourite songs. Yeah, no, it really gets me. <laughs> it really gets me. Okay. It was, yeah, quite a long song. Builds, it was, yeah. Builds over time. Mm-hmm. All right, jumping into our next interview. Uh, today we're going to be talking about kind of poverty rates and economic, the economic environment. So mm-hmm. the Household Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia survey which shortens to HILDA, uh, has released a new report discussing kind of poverty rates uh, in Australia as we see them. So it's our most recent kind of data on it. Um, and so we've got Professor Roger Wilkins on the phone um, from Melbourne University to kind of talk more. He's behind kind of this survey. Good morning, Roger. Good morning. Good morning. Um, before we get straight into the interview, I was just hoping you could break down some of these terms because I was reading through uh, the report and kind of the summary, and it was um, <laughs> I was just a bit like, oh. How do, we, how do these measurements work? So just because you're in the know, um, how do we measure poverty in Australia? Because in the article uh, summarising this report, it mentions both relative poverty, poverty yeah. and the anchored rate. Could you kind of break down what these two different measurement sticks yeah. are? Yeah, so I mean, look, um, it's much easier to say what poverty is um, than it is to actually sort of define it and measure it. So mm. you know, we, we sort of know poverty is basically just you have a lack of economic resources and in particular lack of income. Um, but it's always a little bit arbitrary where you set the line in terms of whether someone is deemed to be in poverty or not. Now, um, a common international measure is to set the poverty line at, at half the median income. So the median is the, the middle income, the income of the person in the middle of the, uh, of, of the income distribution. And you say, well, if someone's got less than half of that, um, then... Um, we'll say that they're in what we call a relative poverty. Um, so they're sort of, they're, they're not, and this is because we think so often of poverty as being um, whether you're able to um, live a normal life for that society that you live in. So if you have less than sort of half the average income of someone that society, you say that you're unlikely to be able to uh, participate in the normal sort of uh, activities of, uh, of that community. Um, now the anchored versus the, uh, the the relative poverty measure, and an, what an anchored poverty measure does is it, um, it it calculates that 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 half median poverty line measure in one year, and then and then keeps it at the same value thereafter. So each year, if um, it, it, so what it means is that you adjust for inflation, so if the prices of okay. services are going up, then you increase the poverty line for that. In that general increase, um, but you don't change it uh, in line with changes in average income. So, uh, so what that and often people prefer that in the short run because in the short run you could get some people moving into poverty not because their income went down but because the median went up. Oh, uh, so sometimes okay. in the short run we like to look at the anchored poverty rate and say, well, um, because then if the anchored if the anchored poverty rate goes up, that means that more people actually slip. Into, um, into having lower income here where they actually afford fewer goods and services. So it's, yeah, it's a messy business, um, um, but these are fairly widely used internationally, pretty widely accepted. Mm. And just touching on that kind of, you know, it's very hard to define uh, poverty. Could you kind of break that down for us? Uh, do you mean it's very hard to define it in economical terms or kind of more a social kind of beast? Well, yeah, so, the, so you know, when people are studying poverty in developing countries, they tend to uh, use what we call an absolute measure, and they basically say, how much money do you need 
to basically be able to sustain your life, you know, mm. to, to, okay. to, 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 uh, to get enough food and, 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 and shelter. Um, but when we're looking at developed countries like Australia and, um, and other OECD countries, um, we, we tend to prefer these relative measures where, so for example, 120 years ago, it wasn't normal to have running water and, 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 and electricity and so forth. And so, um, the income, the relative income would have, would have sort of been absurd to say, well, you know, you needed to have those things back then to not be in poverty because you would have basically sort of been saying everyone was in poverty. Um, but, but similarly, um, if, if we hadn't, if we had an increase of poverty line over time to reflect Increasing in average living standards, um, then you know, we would um, we, we would be saying that you only needed a dollar a day or something like that, uh, oh, okay. to live, which obviously you can't live like a normal life in Australia today on on one dollar a day. Okay. Um, so it's looking more so who who is um, excluded rather than necessarily or who has less access, right? Um, comparable to where they're living and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, from this report, there has been a demonstrated increase in poverty rates, uh, with a large aspect of that s- suggesting that this um, increase in poverty is closely tied to our kind of economic, uh, I think the report calls it health of the Australian economy. Could you kind of break down for us what, what shift have we seen in the economic kind of landscape that, do you th- uh, that you think has impacted this increase in poverty rates? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, broadly speaking, we've seen since 2012 no growth in household income. Mm-hmm. Overall, um, so there's just you know there's been a lot of public discussion about how uh, wages growth has been very very limited. Uh, so that that sort of speaks to a you know a broader economic malaise, if you like, that uh, the economy is not growing. So when the Australian economy was growing strongly, you know, sort of up until around 2009, um, the um, that was actually that, that that was in fact, um, we, you know, we did a reasonably good job as a country in terms of distributing the benefits of that growth. Um, mm. Certainly compared with some other countries, we actually were reducing the number of people in poverty, and incomes of, of low-income households were actually growing quite strongly. And so, and so, we were making quite a few inroads into poverty. But since uh, uh, since then, economic growth has been a lot more, a lot weaker, and that. Uh, has ultimately um, uh, had impacts on the on number of people yeah. um, in poverty. Now, there are other sort of more specific things we can point to, such as um, the fact that uh, people on um, allowances in a particular New Start allowance, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, they're, um, uh, that that allowance has uh, basically not increased in real terms since 19... 94, I believe. 94, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and so, average, and, and yet average living standards of the Australian community have increased since 1994. So, so to participate, you know, you know back, back then it was pretty uncommon actually for people to have mobile phones. Now you just cannot get by in our society. It's just expected almost that you have a mobile phone. Mm, yeah, it's, it's assumed, yeah. That you didn't have back in 1994 when you were, you know, um, but yeah, there's all sorts of things like that. Um, yeah. The cost of housing has gone up faster than the general price level. So to be able to afford to, uh, to live in a, um, particularly the major urban areas. So a whole lot of kind of economic factors happening there. Um, also, since 
2012, um, there's been quite a lot of change in policy surrounding um, kind of welfare systems in Australia. And one of the things the report kind of emphasised was um, the the impact of changing eligibility criteria, yeah. in, yeah. uh, introducing kind of more so income tests and changed indexing rates. Um, could you talk about how that influences the individual and how that influences the individual who is in a position or experiencing poverty? Yeah, well, so so with the um, one important thing that's happened, um, well, it's probably been sustained now for about 20 years, but it's, um, um, uh, uh, um, but, you know, it, it happened certainly in the 2000s as well. So we're moving more and more people off pensions and onto the new start allowance. Uh, so, for example, uh, to get on the disability support pension, it used to be that um, you were not capable of working at least 30 hours a week um, in order to be eligible for disability support pension. Now, if you're capable of working between 15 and 30 hours, um, uh, then, um, then you're not eligible for the disability pension, which is paid at a higher rate um, than new start allowance. You get put on new start allowance. So we're, we're putting more people with disability, for example, on new start allowance. Mm. Similarly, with single parents, now once the youngest child is eight, um, you're, you're put on to the new start allowance from the whereas the parenting payment single for them is paid at the higher pension rate. So that's also um, contributing to uh, putting more people in poverty because it's putting more people onto the payment uh, that um, is lower. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, indexation, this is complicated, it's largely to do with <laughs> uh, family benefits, family tax benefits. Um, there's been a number of changes to the, the income thresholds, the income test for family tax benefits. A and B, some freezing of the indexation of of thresholds and um, and, and and freezing of indexation of the, the, the annual lump sum payment and then its removal in certain circumstances. So lots of lots of complex fiddling, which sort of uh, makes it very hard to uh, um, you know in a quick soundbite say accuse the government of cutting a benefit, um, but it's nonetheless have been quite. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, had quite a, a substantial impact on the incomes of families. Now, they often do it in ways where even the families themselves don't, often don't notice it because, mm. for example, it might be that um, uh, they, they, they do what's called grandfathering. So it's only people who newly come on for the benefit who don't, who don't get the higher rate and things like oh, that. Okay. Um, but, so there's all sorts of uh, ways uh, that they... Um, have done that. Um, Bureaucratic hoops almost. Is that, yeah. is that what we're kind of getting at, this idea of making it more and more fiddly for people to access? Uh, well, that's... Um, for family tax benefit, no. I think that that's fairly um, uh, um, automatic, that oh, okay. process. Mm-hmm. But, but for something that's certainly uh, for a new start allowance, mm. um, <laughs> you know, um, that's, that's basically... Uh, I think that's the lifeline new start is at least uh, basically being a uh, skill in jumping through lots of hoops. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, and kind of with all these kind of, as you said, policy changes, economic uh, flatlining, um, and and this increased poverty rates. Do you what, what do you think this is the narrative that this this report kind of creates about a, a, a hmm. Uh, kind of public identity of people experiencing poverty in Australia and kind of how that contrasts to the the rhetoric that we're getting from our government and the policy we're getting from our government, which is very um, the, des- the deserving rich, very much, well, you make the choice to be poor kind of thing, is, is 
what Scott Morrison has kind of dog whistled in the past. Uh, yes. Well, I mean, I, you know, um, the, the politics of it is probably, um, you know, straying a bit out of my lane, I suppose, <laughs> uh, as an economist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, um, yes, yeah, certainly then I would... Do you think uh, the politics is listening to the economy? Sorry? Sorry, do you think that politics is then listening to the economy? Um, well, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, there, there is an element of, I guess, uh, possibly hearing what and seeing what you want to mm-hmm. in, in there, and, and perhaps, um, yeah, I think uh, there, there is a, and uh, there has been quite a, um, a lot of public discussion um, from politicians on, you know, both sides of politics about the adequacy of New Start, for example. So, mm. um, yeah, I, I look, I, I, I don't. Um, um, know to, to to what extent that there is sort of willful ignorance or something going on, but <laughs> yeah, um, you know, what I would say, uh, you know, certainly the, the notion that um, the poor are there because of their own failing, mm. um, you know, certainly as a social scientist, I disagree with that. There's, um, it, it's very, it's very um, clear that, uh, for example, um, how how well off your parents mm, were growing okay. up is a pretty important factor in how well off you'll be later in life and you don't get to choose your parents so no absolutely um, yeah so that that in itself um should uh you know, you know refute that, that argument it's not to say that um people's actions have no effect on their you know their economic fortunes but the idea that you have complete control over them is i think uh Mm. Um, jumping back quickly to the report, um, Hilda shows that relative poverty in Australia, which is, as you said, measured in kind of disposable income and compared, uh, is less than half of the national medium income. Uh, and I just kind of wanted to have a quick kind of breakdown, you know, of what these economic terms kind of mean. Um, it's equivalent to or earning less than $23,000 a year in 2017, and that apparently rose from 9.4% in 2016 to 10.4% in 2017. Yep. Um, up until then, or, uh, sorry, I should say, the rate had been previously falling steadily from 12.4% in 2001. Could you kind of break down these percents and just give us a bit more, um, uh, I suppose, significance behind the numbers? Uh, well, um, you know, <laughs> one in ten people, you know, has has this uh, income. And now, what we call an equivalised income. So, if you were a single person oh, okay. household, you mm-hmm. would have a household income of of twenty less than twenty four thousand um, dollars if uh, if you were in poverty. Um, but if you you are, for example, a couple uh, without children, then you would have about thirty less than thirty six thousand. The poverty line would be one and a half times uh, that. Um, and if, if you had, if you're a couple with two children, um, it would be in the order of about $52,000. This is after tax and benefits. So this is after state tax and if there's any benefits you're entitled to, your income would be less than that 2000 So that, so what we're doing is we're saying, well, you need, obviously, if you've got more people in your household, you need more income. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't, you don't need... You know, two people don't need twice the income of one person because, you know, you, it, it, that typically doesn't cost twice as much to rent a two-bedroom uh, apartment as a one-bedroom apartment. And, you know, you don't have, once you're heating, heating one room, uh, it keeps it for both people, you know, whether there's one or two people in the, in the, in, in the room. So there's sort of a, what we call a kind of a scale, um, in, in, uh, in, in homes. So that, uh, we, we, we want to, uh, 
you definitely want to adjust how much income you need in order to be deemed in poverty, depending on how many people in the house. But we don't want to assume that you, know, that you need uh, twice as much. Right, gotcha. Three times as much as the three people and so forth. Okay, well, it does It does sound like there's a lot of different conditions and a lot of um, kind of steps to take to finally getting that number, getting the, synthesising that data. Um, thank you so much for coming on and kind of giving us a bit of a breakdown around it. Um, so I, I hope that we, as you've mentioned, we do see a raise in Newstart. It sounds as if it's a necessary thing and we do hear politics listening to the economy. And again, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about it. No problem, thank you. And that was Roger Wilkins from Melbourne University. Um, Rob, we're going to jump in quickly to a very, very quick um, pre-record. What, what's going on? Yes, so we have Tim Kennedy from the National Union of Workers, who's in conversation with Vivian Langford, Langford who's with Beyond Zero Emissions. Um, and they're talking about the role of unions in the climate emergency. So let's have a listen. The reason I invited Tim Kennedy from the National Union of Workers to speak to us today is this statement. It's time for our movement to think big and take the lead. Well-paid union jobs with a future rest not on pretending the climate emergency doesn't exist, but in positioning Australia to be a renewable energy superpower, exporting clean energy to the world. And Beyond Zero Emissions has written many papers on this and would thoroughly endorse that idea. So welcome, Tim. Thank you, Vivian. Could you please unpack that for us, how your union and other unions are going to take the lead for the future? Well, for us, um, it's a fundamental question because uh, the issue of taking action to deal with the climate crisis affects workers, and that tends to get a lot of coverage in the media. But the response to take no action or inaction on the climate crisis is fundamentally worse for working people. So we represent workers uh, in all sorts of sectors that are impacted by the climate crisis that the world is going through at the moment. So, for example, a factory opened by a multinational called Nestle in Dennington in southwestern Victoria 110 years ago uh, just decided to close its doors in the last month and for the fundamental reason is uh, drought. Ongoing drought means there's not enough milk supply to process uh, milk in that part of southwestern Victoria. So we see that in our dairy industry, ongoing severe droughts undermining that. We also see it in the fact that we're organising workers in the uh, horticultural supply chain and it has an international dimension. So not only is there an issue about water, making certain that people can actually grow sustainable crops, but we have many of the workers who work in those crops come from our um, South Pacific neighbours. They come here because essentially they need to get decent work and those, those countries they come from will be the first affected to go underwater, if you like, as, as the climate crisis worsens. So there's an international dimension uh, and there's a fundamental worker, um, worker decency dimension. That is, you know, we need to confront the fact that if we don't deal with these issues... What type of jobs are our kids going to have? What type of meaningful work will they have in the future? Well, I'm impressed by your union because I went to the Labor Party conference in Adelaide uh, just before Christmas and there was a, a marvellous session with them, those overseas workers there, and they were they handed out celery and blueberries and strawberries to everybody and we all had to 
stand up and show what we had like. I had a piece of celery and then the worker who had picked the celery stood up and talked about their wages and conditions, which you are working for, but sound like very woeful and a lot of people will be horrified to hear um, what their conditions are. So could you tell us, listeners might be interested to know the diversity of your membership. You're not just in farm work, but what other workers are covered by your um, union and how is climate change affecting them? Yeah, so, I mean, our union is actually in the process of uh, our members are voting right now to form a new union, the United Workers Union, with United Voice, and we hope to be a union of over 155,000 nationally. But the type of areas that our workers work in is, is in fundamental food production, uh, pharmaceutical production. We're in the energy area, so we're, we're involved in, you know, uh, oil refining and the like. So our our members and workers are in those areas that, are, that have to change. So there's a there's a transition in the way that we derive our energy in the world occurring. I mean, Australia's been pretty chaotic about it, but that energy transition is happening. Our workers will be subject to that, who are members of our union. Automation is coming to the big warehouses and manufacturing food plants that our members work at. And we need to be able to deal with these challenges, especially in the context of the climate emergency, because uh, the one voice that is not being heard in how we actually transition in a just way in this is, is the voice of workers. And so it's very easy for the populist right to create a, uh, to create a, a situation where if you want to support working people, you have to support the mine and Adani or, or nothing else. And yeah. so it's, it's a cruel choice that's been put in front of working people. And our union believes that uh, we all live on the same planet and we also need to confront these issues because so, we work in every sector. Yeah. Well, look, why would your well-paid members of the oil and gas industry, why would they support the students who are inviting us to stand with them to close down the fossil fuel industry, basically? And, um, you know, they're doing stop Adani and go for 100, you know, very simple slogans. But why would your members in that sort of area go to strike on September the 20th? I mean, how would they square it with themselves? That's their bread and butter. Yeah, well, that's the nature of a large democratic union because at the moment, uh, put to them like that, they probably wouldn't support it. What, what, they, what they want is, is certainty in their lives and some hope that they actually will have a stake in the future and do it in a way that's just. So uh, it's, a, it's going to be a long conversation inside our union about how workers in the oil and gas industry are able to transition uh, and to be workers in the next generation of, of energy transition and, and production, whether that be renewable hydrogens or what have you. But it, it's going to be a real challenge for us, Vivian, because uh, we can ignore it and just say everything just stays the same and we'll, when we get locked into that climate inaction or as a democratic organisation that actually wants a future for the next generation and also wants a future for workers now, we actually have to have these conversations, educate ourselves and find a way to participate in the political debate rather than have people do all that thinking for us and impose outcomes on working people. Well, sure. Well, what plans are being written inside your union and with others to make sure that workers are not stranded alongside the stranded assets that we hope will be the fossil fuel industry? Well... A number of the things that we're looking at at the moment is how do we um, change the ownership structures uh, in this country so there's more democratic ownership of energy. Um, is that of like energy. cooperatives or yeah, community-owned yeah. power? 
Exactly. Our, our worker cooperative in the area of uh, community-owned power cooperative is an important example of one, but we also want to look at ways that we can actually have uh, contribution to clean energy jobs, uh, uh, locally-based worker-owned cooperatives. Uh, also, we also want to work out ways that how we can uh, give workers a say in what a just transition looks like. We also want to fill in this idea, what is a Green New Deal look like in the context of Australia? How, do, how does it actually... Uh, uh, people use that slogan a lot. What we want to do is fill in the gaps and put some meat on the bones. Yeah, it. well, I was, that was my last question to you because a lot of your energy, your workers, when I looked up all the people who participate in your um, National Union of Workers, they, they are involved in food, in energy, manufacturing, and so they're all the lifeblood of the society. And I wondered how the new Green New Deal would work both for the workers and for the cooler climate. Have you got a few more, fle- a, bit, a bit of flesh to put on those bones? We do, and, and the building of this new union will be fundamentally give us an opportunity to actually talk on a much greater scale because you can see in all the sectors that we work uh, there is there is great challenges for the way that workers transition uh, or transition and then we'll have to transition because it will come. It, automation is coming. The change of our energy mix is coming. Uh, the one thing that's missing with all this Vivian is, is a worker voice and we just want to make certain that we're starting to do that thinking, having those conversations inside our union now, that we stand with the next generation, for example, on the 20th of September, and, and say that, you know, as difficult as it is, we want to be part of that part of a solution, not part of you know, looking backwards. Well, I really appreciate that because I've been to a few meetings um, and about this, and, and a lot of the people who said they would go on strike were really low-paid workers and very unsecure, insecure sort of, you know, uh, work situations and for them to come on strike that's a big <laughs> loss of their income so I really appreciate that and I hope you'll keep in touch with us and, and update us and keep telling us about this story because I really don't think the mainstream media is telling us much about what's happening at all and I'd just like to finish on a quote I had somewhere someone said the uh, transition is inevitable but the justice is not inevitable so that's what you're working at isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Well, thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Tim. So that was Tim Kennedy from the National Union of Workers. And you're listening to 3CR. Okay, we're heading up to our closing time. So a quick wrap-up. Um, just who did we talk to at 7.30 again? Yeah, Stretching so your mind back. <laughs> at 7.30 we had Rihanna Knight, who is the founder of Team Timbuktu, an Australian brand mm. that uses sustainable means of sourcing their materials um, from recycled bottles. Absolutely. And, yeah, she gave us a super informative rundown on where that's all heading. Absolutely. And if you're interested in kind of getting more into ethical fashion, yeah. um, there is an app for you. I'm just trying to find it. I it's think it's called... Good On You. Good On, good you. on you. Yeah, it's great. It's good. It, good. it, it, it um, delivers kind of daily reports on different brands mm. and kind of what the, the truisms are of its kind of of their production line. Yeah. And it tells you which brands... Um, Fit in align with your values. Yeah. So it's a it's makes a good it easier life. for you to sort of uh, find a brand that you would like to, to navigate. Yeah. 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 It is. It's quite difficult. Yeah. To it even shows you the that. nearest shop as well. Yes. Yeah, so. No, it's a location. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's got everything. It's like a Tinder, but for ethical clothes. You'll love me. Yeah. And I love you. Um, and we just talked to Roger at about eight o'clock. Roger is from the Melbourne University. Mm-hmm. He was behind uh, the Hilda survey, uh, which is let's just get the full name up. It's the housing. 
uh, Household Income Labor Dynamics in Australia survey. Mm. Quite a mouthful. <laughs> I've been struggling with that all morning. <laughs> anyway, so that was kind of our show. Uh, yeah. And we've been listening to some great previous conversations. I mean, unions and mm. also IPAN. You couldn't ask for better, kind of. Absolutely. And in terms of the weather for today, it's tops of 14 degrees, so it's pretty chilly. Yeah. And it's kind of cloudy, so it's kind of a bit of a meh. Mm. Meh day. I think it's a day that I'm going to go home and sleep in. I think it's <laughs> And what are we grateful for? I'm grateful for bees. The fact that half oh. a billion bees have gone from Brazil makes me more grateful for bees than we should have more. Oh. So I'm oh. grateful for those that are still alive. That depresses me, man. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> I'm actually going to say we've already spoken about it, but that app. Good on you. Yeah, no, mm. I'm genuinely grateful for it this morning, especially after that conversation. Um, I'm extraordinarily grateful the people who are going up in my stead and also on their own mm-hmm. proclivity to up to uh, Jatwarong mm-hmm. land and kind of um, the sacred trees that are currently under threat mm-hmm. from Vic Rhodes, Daniel Andrews' government. Um, within our last 30 seconds, I'll just remind people that if you are interested, you can find them on Facebook. You can find carpools to the camp mm-hmm. um, up in Ararat and these are 800-year-old trees. I, I reckon once Daniel Andrews lives 800 years, then he can sign the approval form mm-hmm. to destroying these absolutely amazing trees. Anyway, with that, we thank the show that came before us, Earth Matters, as always, mm-hmm. and we um, go into the next show. Stick together. See you next week. Happy yeah. Wednesday. CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.